Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Happy Easter. Uh, for those of you in the, in the big room here this morning, would you move in if there are any seats in between you and folks? And we'll let you give $10 less. No, you, we can do that whatever you want, all right? If you can just slide in. We have some people that are coming over from the other building, which is full, and we want to make sure that they have an opportunity to come in and have a seat. We appreciate you doing that. Again, happy Easter. We're glad you're with us today. If you're visiting, my name is Mark, and I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church. And uh, so we're glad you joined us here. We're completing a series called Relentless Pursuit which has been through the Gospel of Mark. The first eight chapters focus on who Jesus is, 9 through 16. Those chapters deal with what he came to do and how he did it. Today is the culmination of this entire story about what Jesus came to do. And what I want to encourage you uh, with today is, especially those of you that don't attend church frequently, I don't say that to belittle you, but I want to help explain a few things. If you come to Easter annually, but you don't attend church outside of that, you probably think that the only thing Christians ever say to each other is, He is risen. Because that's what you hear on Easter Sunday. And in most churches, we'll say, He is risen, and the crowd will respond back, He is risen indeed. Well, today what I want to talk to you about is an understanding about that term, he has risen. It's an it's a interesting under, understanding for most of us because what we hear is, he has risen, and we say, good for Jesus. And we miss the importance of it. Let me explain it better this way. Sometimes I've got buddies who get into fantasy football, and I do too, and they will call me and tell me round by round who they drafted. And my response to them is, man, I don't care. Good for you. I'm glad you got a great team. Not relevant to my life at all. I've got friends who play golf and give me hole by hole. That was a double bogey followed by an eagle. Man, I don't care. I mean, I love you, and I'm glad you had a good round of golf. But my reality right now is not impacted at all by the fact that you have that. I had a friend uh, several years ago who called me and said, you're not going to believe it. He said, 165-yard par three, I got a hole in one. He said the ball bounced twice, went right into the cup. We didn't see it because we were up on a flat. And he said by the time we got down there, we looked in the cup and there it was. And it was awesome and we all celebrated. And for about 35 minutes, because I'm very selfish, for about 35 minutes, I was happy for him. But then about five days later, he said, hey, did I tell you? I got, yeah, yeah, go away. I moved on. That was many days ago. I moved on. It had no relevance to me. And I wonder if some of us come to church on Easter and we hear this expression hey, he's risen. And we think, yay, Jesus. Now, if my buddy had called me and said, hey, Mark, about five days ago, on a par three, 165, I hit a hole in one. And because your name was on the card, you won a million dollars in a free truck too. <laughs> I'd still be telling that story. <laughs> and every time you saw me, I'd go, hey, did I tell you my boy got a hole in one? Why? Because he is risen. But if we're not, so what? You see, Easter is about us understanding because he's risen, our name's on the card, and everything he gets for being risen, we get too. And that changes Easter from a yay Jesus to a yay me. Mark chapter 16, verse 1, the last chapter of Mark's story of Christ. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. 
Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, let's pause there. Just after sunrise, it's Sunday morning. A few days previously, Jesus had been falsely arrested, falsely accused, falsely tortured, and then falsely killed. And then it's Saturday. They laid the body in a tomb. They rolled a stone in front of it. They put Roman guards in front of that. And on Saturday, can you imagine the mindset of the disciples? All of their dreams shattered. All of the sermons they heard devalued. And an endless day of wondering, if I had only done, or if I'd only said, or if I'd only tried. All of that. A torturous Saturday. Then on Sunday morning, three women get up, and they head to the tomb. They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Now, in Luke, Matthew, and John, in their stories of Jesus, they tell the same story. That these followers of Jesus, who were women, went to the tomb to take care of the body, the dead body of their fallen Lord. And this relentless pursuit that Jesus talked about, the reason he came, what God testified, the miracles, the healings, all of that testified who he was. And then instantly, who he was and the great promise of what he would do in building a kingdom, he's gone, he's dead, they're broken. And there they sit in that moment. You see, when you look at what the resurrection can mean to us, the term he is risen can mean, yay, Jesus, good for him. I'm glad he did well. Or it can mean, yay, for us, everything's changed. And what I'd like to do this morning is show you in the resurrection that there is something about it that changes. It's a challenging thing for us. So let's begin by looking that the resurrection challenges your mind. It challenges your thoughts. And let let me explain. It comes from verse 6. The angel said, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The resurrection, the reality that Jesus was really dead and then he wasn't really dead and he appeared to both those who believed in him and those who didn't. That reality challenges our mind. Because if you look through history, previous to Jesus coming, there were many poser messiahs, people who posed to be what they were not. And you'll notice in history, every one of them was executed or killed, and when they died, their followers dispersed into culture, and not another word was said about their movement, except for this one named Jesus, who wasn't a poser, he was the messiah. And when he died and was resurrected from the tomb... His people grew in depth and breadth and went throughout the world and today are still going to all parts of the world preaching the news that he's risen. And because he's risen, so are we. And this changed everything in that time. He said he would do it and then he did it. Even when they didn't understand what he was doing, he said he would do it and he did it. And these realities changed not only his supporters, but they changed people who were against him. When Paul, a young Pharisee, who was persecuting the followers of Jesus, trying to put an end to this madness. When he wrote a letter, after he'd found Jesus and discovered his resurrection, he wrote a letter, and he sent it to the, to the Christians that lived in the provinces of Rome. 
It, we call it the book of Romans in our New Testament. And this letter would be circulated amongst the house churches. I want you to, I know it's four verses, but I want you to track with me as you see it on the screen. Why Paul believed. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul tells you why he chose to believe in this Messiah who wasn't a poser, he was the real deal. It was the resurrection. It was a challenge to his mind. That's why he came. That's what he said he would do. Multiple times in the book of Mark and throughout the entirety of Gospels, he would say, in three days I will be raised again. He told him it would happen. He challenged them to look for that as the evidence of who he was. But people today want to dismiss that this is legend, that his disciples were embarrassed that they invested in their lives in a poser. And so because when he died, they would decide to make up this scheme but here's what I want to show you. There's evidence to tell you that that's, that's not true. Mark records three women by name who, when he wrote his history, were alive, and they could have corroborated the evidence he presented. You don't put real people who are still alive who can say, nah, that didn't happen. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would write the names of people who saw him alive after he was dead. You don't do that unless they can testify to the truth you're presenting. Another thing that people like to do is they like to dismiss that miracles don't happen. And if miracles don't happen, then certainly the resurrection didn't happen. Which is interesting when you look at it. Our worldview is not open to miracles today. We shut them down and we try to explain them away. And we think that people in Jesus' day were ignorant. We think that they, that they were open to miracles because they wanted to believe in this, so they made up and fantasized about what happened so that they could continue living the dream, if you will. And I want to tell you that Mark challenges that. Mark repeatedly shows us that they weren't expecting him to be raised from the dead. For instance, why, if, if they knew, I mean, they were told this, but if they really believed that he'd be raised in three days, why on the third day did, did the men, the disciples of Jesus, the closest to him, why didn't they go to the tomb with the women? Because it, in their minds, it was a futile thing. He's dead. Why did the women go to the tomb with burial ointments? Well, let me explain something to you. The Jews did not embalm a body. So if you read what they took as embalming agents, you've misunderstood. They were going to take care of the body. They were going to put aloe on him and spices on him so when his body decayed, it would not stink. They were going to honor him, and all they could think after a desperate Saturday was, we just need to go do this act of love because he loved us. And what did the angel say? Don't be alarmed. Why would they say, don't be alarmed? Because they weren't expecting to find what they found. And when the tomb was empty, and the grave clothes that he was wrapped in were laid there where he lay those days, they had enough intellectual integrity that they saw the evidence and they chose to believe in it. They researched the evidence and they chose to believe in it. So my question today is, if the resurrection is to speak to us, with more than a yay Jesus, but a yay us. Do we have the in 
intellectual integrity to read the evidence presented by the eyewitnesses and come to a conclusion about how, who Jesus really is. Because it's easy to say Jesus was raised from the dead, but it's different when that reality changes your mind about who he is. So that's the first piece. Verse 7, he says, He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The challenge is, will we look at the evidence and conclude who Jesus really was? The second piece of the resurrection that fascinates me is that it reveals a word of grace for the heart. There is evidence that intellectually will challenge you and you'll have to do something with it. But there's also the grace of the moment where the resurrection makes a difference in the way we feel and think about ourselves and about others. You see, resurrection day means he is risen. And when we say he is risen indeed, what we're saying is he put our name on the card. We get all the benefits he ever got. He's including us in on this and we did nothing to earn it. That's why we tell his story. Verse 7, go tell the disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. The words of grace are found here when it says, tell the disciples and Peter. Mark records that because that's significant. On the Thursday night previous, Peter had made a bold claim, a confession, that if every other man or woman in the entire world was not faithful, he would be faithful to Jesus. He would be the one who stayed with Jesus. And he, with his pride, he said Jesus was wrong. And then that night, he failed as a coward. And he allowed everything to fall apart. And he ran away when he had a moment to stand up. And he fought when he should have awaited. And he had all of this failure. And isn't it significant that on that day, the angel would speak and say to the women, you go tell his disciples and Peter. I tend to believe that Peter probably thought he was no longer a disciple. Wouldn't you feel that way? If you had failed as drastically as Peter did that night, wouldn't you conclude, just maybe, maybe I'm not one anymore. I have to start from the bottom rung completely. But Jesus doesn't work the way you and I work. We say to people, I'll forgive you when I'm convinced that you're sorry and you know what you did. God doesn't work that way. Jesus says, I'm going to forgive you so you will repent. Do you see the difference? We say, repent, prove to me, and then I may forgive you depending on how I feel. Jesus said, no, I'm going to forgive Peter in advance. Tell him to meet me in the future. I'm going to be there. Tell him to come see me. Jesus had already forgiven Peter for his epic failure and all of his mistakes. What significance does that have? Well, listen to this. Because Peter's screw-up was the biggest and most public, should he repent, his repentance would be deeper, more significant, and meaningful. His grasp of grace would be greater. In fact, Peter would become one of the spokesmen for the early church because he understood that no matter how you fail, no matter what breaks down, no matter what things you've ruined in your life, the grace of Christ is bigger. You can take Peter's name out of this and insert your own as a follower of Jesus. Would you need, do you need to hear the resurrected Jesus say to you, I have already forgiven the fact that you're not good at following me. I've already forgiven that you've embarrassed yourself. You've been seduced by the world and you made promises you couldn't keep. Man, we see salvation. We see being saved from our sins as something that I'm going to reform, I'm going to do better, and then I'm going to prove to Jesus he didn't make a mistake. And Jesus is already willing to say, no, you will be the biggest mistake I make. 
But I'm going to love you in such a way that my grace will cause you to be forgiven. And by being forgiven, you are going to live uniquely with hope, with promise. So am I really saying on Easter morning that the truth of it is that our failures enhance the flow of God's grace into our lives? It's what you do with your failures. That's what I'm saying. Because our failures feel like a death. We lost, lost the death. Uh, it's a death of our self-image. It's a death of our reputation. It's a death of our belief in ourselves. And so it is a death. And many of us try to hide it. But all we do then is decay. And we start to stink. And we start to fall apart. And until we go into the grace of Christ and die to ourselves because of our sin, then and only then can by the grace of Jesus can we come to life again. Let me explain it more simply. That was theological. When Jesus went to the cross, the scriptures say that he went to this cross and he died on this cross for the sins of all mankind. If you're convicted of a crime in our country, you're going to be sent away to prison. But after you have completed your sentence, if they, if they condemn you to seven years and you're going to spend seven years in prison, upon the seventh year being completed, you are allowed, by law, having fulfilled the penalty, you are allowed to walk out of that jail a free person. So how do I know that the work Jesus did on the, on the cross covers my sins? Because when the tomb opened, he walked out free. Our sentence was on him. He walked out a free man, so you and I can walk out free men and free women. Tell Peter, I'll see you soon. And that's the message of grace. So it's a message to our mind, the evidence that the tomb was empty. It's a message to our heart that failures like Peter are invited to come back and join the disciples. And lastly, it reveals a word of mission for our lives. It gives us a purpose. And this is where we go from saying, Jesus is risen, yay, Jesus, good for him, to saying, Jesus is risen, and because of that, I am too. I want to look at two phrases the angel said to the women that day. The first is, don't be alarmed. Why were they alarmed? Because they weren't truly expecting, no matter how many times Jesus said it, they weren't expecting him not to be there. They went to take care of his body, and his body wasn't there, and they were stunned by this, and the angel said, no, no, wait, remember what he told you. And what does not being alarmed do for us? It means when the world comes down on us hard, and this is a broken place, that we can be above fear. So it means that we we don't have to have fear when we face suffering. We don't have to have fear when we face death or the death of someone we love. It was a hard week to read what took place in Africa to know that 147 believers were separated from non-believers and killed. And there's a part of me that wants to go, what's going on? That all these radical religions are growing up and doing damage to the body of Christ. Why? God, where are you? Why don't you stop that? And I could become really afraid until this truth. When I live my life, is this the only life I'm going to get? then the resurrection means nothing to me. But when I understand that this fortune I have, this world I live in, and this body I have, it's not the only one I'm going to get. All of us are going to live forever. Some of us are going to live in the blessings of grace, and some of us are not. All based on whether or not the resurrection matters to us. And we live differently. You see, there was a young Christian woman who had an accident when she was 18 years of age and she was paralyzed from the neck down. She became a quadriplegic. And the church that she attended in her faith often asked people during the worship services to kneel. 
And she said it broke her heart, made her cry most every week of her life when her pastor would say, let's all kneel in prayer. And because of her brokenness, she sat in her wheelchair unable to respond to Christ that way. And she said week after week she cried and she regretted those moments and wished they didn't happen. Then she said one day, the pastor said, kneel. And she decided, I can't kneel, but I'll pray the prayer. The prayer that particular morning was about the hope of the resurrection. I'd like to quote to you what this young lady wrote. I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I'll be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. That's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, here's the best part. This is what made my tail wag. She said, and then I'm going to get up on my feet and I'm going to dance. And I'm thinking, that's the difference between yay Jesus and yay me. Persecution, we're going to dance. Brokenness, we're going to dance. Regrets, dance. Can't get over what I did, you're going to dance. The resurrection doesn't mean you get a second start. The resurrection means you get a new everything. Everything that's been taken is going to be restored. And nothing in this world can offer you that with any reality, except when you understand, when the angel said, do not be alarmed, there is nothing this world can bring on us that God can't fix. He may fix it on the other side of our death, but he will fix it. It's his promise. And the empty tomb should remind us, it's not just about our mind, it's not just about our hearts, it's about our future. It's about why we exist and what we do. The worst things of this life will not last because Jesus Christ came out of that tomb. And because he did, he put our name on the card. And every single one of us who's written in the Lamb's Book of Life is going to walk in new bodies, in a new earth, in a grand celebration. So don't be alarmed by what this world brings you. Secondly, go and tell. This is what the angel told him to do. But I want you to notice something interesting in verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, you might think that's a strange response, especially if I told you this. Verse 8 is probably the last verse in the Gospel of Mark. I know some of you are looking at your Bibles and you see verses 9 through 16, but most scholarship, it's almost universally agreed that verses 9 through 16 were not actually written by Mark. They were added later by somebody else. That's why in many of your Bibles, it's bracketed which means that the words that are written in verses 9 through 16 are not the same kind of words that Mark used in other parts of the letter. He had a pattern to his writing, and this writing is unique. That's just one of the examples. So if you end the Gospel of Mark, where I choose to, at verse 8, it's really a bad ending. The angel said, don't be alarmed. Go and tell. They were still alarmed, and they didn't tell. That's a bad ending to a movie, isn't it? Everything you thought would happen, they're like, nope. See ya, come again, the end. Why would Mark write this? Well, we know from the other gospel writers that these women did not speak to anybody. They didn't walk around going, he's risen, he's risen, he's risen. But they did go back to the disciples. And they said to Peter and John, the tomb's empty. They didn't know what it meant. And it says that James and John, John records this, James and John ran back to the tomb. And it's funny, John beat Peter there. Peter must have been older. And John's standing outside the tomb, and Peter being Peter just bolts into the tomb, and there's no one in there. Mary goes back and the angel turns into being Jesus. And she tries to hug him. He says, now's not the time to hold on to me because he knew he was leaving. And then when they saw, listen to me, when they understood 
that the resurrection wasn't an empty tomb. It was a living Jesus. They started talking. They started telling the story. And what we need to take from this whole story is you can be scared and still be obedient. And when you know Jesus is alive, your fear is momentary. But your hope's eternal. Trembling, bewildered, frightened. Those are terms that Mark uses throughout his entire book. You might remember if you've been with us through this series, I've tried to point out every time that the crowd's reaction was was weird. Jesus came off the Mount of Transfiguration trying to heal the demon-possessed boy. And it said the crowd became frantic. The crowd started spazzing out. Well, why would they act that way? Because there was something about Jesus that they, they knew he had power, but they didn't understand him. And when Jesus would return and he would show himself physically to the disciples, remember their reaction was, what? For many of us, we're in the what stage. I can convince you, I promise you, I can convince you that there is evidence to be intellectually honest that Jesus was raised from the dead. There were eyewitnesses. And, and I can tell you that the love of Christ can overwhelm you in his grace. And I know it to be true. I've experienced it. He says, go tell the disciples in Mark, I'm not done with him. There's another chapter in his story. But until you and I come to the belief and the gifting and the giving ourselves to the reality of Jesus, he is risen is just, yay, glad for him. Instead of, wow, good for us. Because that empty tomb's an invitation. It says in verse 7, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. The truth of the resurrection can be experienced, but it's experienced by those. Now listen to me. The resurrection is only experienced by those who follow Jesus. You see, if they would have stayed where they were and said, the tomb's empty, yay, that means something. They didn't. Jesus said, follow me and I'll show you what it means. And so the disciples went to Galilee where they met him. And he fed them fish on a beach. And he talked to them about loving one another and serving one another and trusting him. And then days later, he was gone. And they kept following. Because their minds knew it was true. Their hearts knew it was true. And now their hands and feet lived to tell how true it was. You see, the reality of the resurrection shows me who he is. The reality of the resurrection shows me how he sees me. And the reality of the resurrection shows me why I'm here. Don't be alarmed. It's true. Now, follow him as he leads you. Some in this room today, just by the size of the room, I'll tell you. Some of us here today believe he was raised, but we don't believe we are. We'd love to have a conversation with you about what that means. And for those of us who know he's been raised from the dead and he's offered to raise us to life, my question is today, should we not go into all the world and tell people he is risen and he offers you the same? And that's what it means to share the faith that's within us. That tomb is empty and our lives are no longer empty. They're filled with something greater. That's why we sing. That's why we celebrate. And that's why we say goofy things like, he is risen. Oh, He is risen indeed. Let's stand together and worship. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.